You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, a podcast hosted by me, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps online course creator, consultant, and a Docker captain. This podcast contains clips from my weekly YouTube live show, where I host a real-time Ask Me Anything style chat with guests and anyone who shows up on YouTube chat, many of whom are students of my Docker courses. You can find out more information, including show notes for this episode at brettfisher.com slash podcast. That's B-R-E-T-F-I-S-H-E-R dot com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I answer some student questions around Kubernetes setup, DNS round robin, and some new Docker plugins, as well as what GitOps is. Um, all right, so the uh, next question is, I'm trying to install Kubernetes as manual installation on three physical servers for our development team purposes from last one week, but our, no luck, can you guide easy way to set up Kubernetes setup? Um, my recommendation is don't do that, just give them a cloud-hosted instance. So if, you're, if your developers are wanting to use Kubernetes and you don't already have experience in Kubernetes and you don't have the four months to learn it and to be an expert in operating it, then I would not manually deploy it. Uh, um, I don't know any company that has less than three full-time Kubernetes administrators that I would recommend rolling your own open source Kubernetes. Um, if you if you can't buy software, even because that's what I would recommend, if you're a business and you're making money and you're running things like Kubernetes, you should be buying products you know, you should be buying support contracts or or hiring experts that already know these tools, because it takes a while. It takes a it takes a good amount of time to learn how to operate on a true business production environment. These tools all on your own. That's why every cloud hoster is built has built a Kubernetes service for you. That's a, just a couple of clicks to you know get it deployed, and then all they have to have is just if they wanted to administrate it, they just need the Kubernetes command line locally. And they just create a new context to talk to that remote server. So then you don't have to worry about it. But if you're building out your own cluster, the probably the easiest way, if you don't want to spend money and you just want a three-node server, probably the easiest way to do it is Rancher. If you just go to Rancher's website and you download their Rancher toolkit for Kubernetes, essentially it gives you the GUI and the sort of the install scripts and the automation to set up that, that set of servers. And that would require that requires you to spend no money, and it would ensure that you know you have RBAC properly installed so that your APIs aren't exposed without security, right? Because that's that's one of the risks, or that your databases aren't properly encrypted for passwords in the SCD database, or that you're at least a little bit fault tolerant by having three three master nodes, stuff like that, right? Um, so do that. Rancher would be way way easier than trying to do it just raw open source. There are definitely other command line tools that you can use. I'm not saying that those won't work, but if you have been spending just a week on this, and so my guess is you've only had Kubernetes, you've only been learning how to deploy Kubernetes for a week, I wouldn't suggest go using those tools yet. If if your developers are waiting on you, Rancher is probably the fast way to do that. In fact, next week, I'm going to have a guest on the show who is one of the co-founders of uh, Rancher, the company. So Darren's going to be on the show. I'm excited to have him and we will talk more about Rancher's products. So if you're interested in Rancher Kubernetes, definitely come back next week. Uh, you'll see that announcement coming out in my newsletter and other things here in the next couple of days. So yeah, it's going to be very cool. Um, he's got a lot of cool projects at, at the company with K3S and 
K3 OS and other stuff. So, hey, all right. I am not able to understand DNS name resolution on Docker containers, which have the same name, round robin Docker DNS using network alias. So, round robin simply means that for every new connection, the connection will go to a different container, right? So, in DNS, we have this concept where if you add multiple A records, then that gives a bunch of different, you know, basically when you would do a DNS lookup, it would return all those IP addresses for the same name. And then the client, whatever your client is, whether it's a browser or some other, you know, programming framework that's connecting to your, um, connecting to your server that is going to be doing the round robin for you. So uh, let me see if I can. First, you just need to look up DNS round robin because that's not a container thing, right? That's not a specific thing for containers. That's just uh, a technology. So you could probably find that on Wikipedia. And yeah, so, you know, looking up what round robin is, what DNS is. And so when you're creating those two containers with a network alias, that's all you're really doing is you're just creating DNS records inside of the Docker engine so that when anything else on that network, on that Docker network, ask for that DNS name, it looks up and then returns two records. And then it's up to the client whether or not it moves the connection to a different one each time, right? So hopefully that helps. If you have more questions on that, uh, feel free to throw them in chat. All right, you're welcome, Charlie. Um, what Docker CLI plugins? Oops. What Docker CLI plugins are available for Docker CE? Um, so, in the if you watch the Docker plugins video from last week, we uh, which I think is day three, <clears throat> we also talk about plugins. Actually, I think we talk about plugins all three days. When you install Docker CE, there are only two out of the box I'm aware of. That is a build X and um, let's see, what's the other one? Um, build X and app. Yeah, build X and app. So Docker space app, Docker space build X. The way you know that on your command line is with the asterisk next to the command. So if you just type in Docker and hit enter, and then you see that, uh, the list of management commands, the ones with asterisks next to them, and then they actually have version numbers. Um, those will be the ones that are CLI commands. So you can see here, I have a bunch, but the most of these are not free. They come with Docker Desktop Enterprise, which um, I have installed uh, from Docker. I, you know, I get it because I'm a captain. So I get some of these like assemble, um, cluster, registry, uh, template. I know Docker's working on some more. They, we saw some at DockerCon, like I think it's called Jump, uh, which they haven't released yet. But the ones out of the box are BuildX for free and App for free. <clears throat> and we've had, we've had access to both of those. Um, the BuildX is really just the, the new version of BuildKit. And so we've always had that for like the last year, uh, at least. And that's allowed us to just enable it with experimental and use the build X and then app is there. Now, if you don't see these, you have to make sure your command line is in experimental mode. So if you, um, 
let's see, Docker uh, config. So if you do this, um, notice that I have experimental enabled. So that's different than my engine being unexperimental. This is just my command line being experimental. And some of these CLI plugins are still experimental. So now there's two places where you have to enable experimental if you want all the, of the new stuff, right? The engine gives you experimental features in the engine. Um, and then to see these extra CLI commands, if they're marked exper experimental, you would have to enable that there. Um, once you do that, there is, I believe, let's, let's do a Google real quick. I think um, on one of the shows last week, someone someone listed, yeah, here we go. There's a, a list of them, actually. So this is probably what you really want to know. So for the question of what CLI plugins are available for Docker CE, this is the only list that I know of. <laughs> of course, I haven't gone around scouring the internet. But um, one of the Docker captains has put together a list. I call it clip. And there's some down here. So uh, these are all extras that are not included with your install. And what this tool does is it allows you to add and remove them. Because Docker, even though Docker has these uh, CLI plugins, they didn't out of the box yet create a way to you know install them from the internet automatically but this tool does so you can check this out and add some of these play around some of them are examples like the the example plugin and some of the other ones uh like the show context pretty pretty cool stuff to just make it easier the some of these are really just automating other commands you could already do right it just makes it a one-liner that's easier to do like running the aqua micro scanner on an image you can already do that but this allows you to do it with one line so it's pretty cool because uh, normally you'd need like an API key and other stuff. So it makes a, that a little bit easier. Great question. So you can sign up for my newsletter at the, at the newsletter URL. And this week talked about GitOps. And I, it's actually a long newsletter this week. So I wanted to talk a little bit about it here and just give you sort of the basics of what GitOps is and what it is not. So We've all heard the term DevOps, and that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. It's a very, uh, it's becoming, I think, more vague in the industry to essentially talk about developers getting their code into production faster. <laughs> that it, it seems that every job that has the DevOps title in it, or everyone who says they want to learn DevOps, their job is somewhere in that realm. You know, they may be a developer, they may be an operator, they may, may be someone who's focused exclusively on CI/CD. They may do lots of things, but DevOps is that nebulous middle piece between code on a laptop and code running in production on a server. Um, and GitOps is a style of doing that work where Git, the versioning protocol Git, is the way that you basically log changes. And so you think of it as the single source of truth for any changes to that process. That process being getting code off the laptop and getting it tested and then getting it in the servers and then updating it when it needs updated. All those things, right? And since we are, as a community of developers, already using Git so much, it's sort of become the default, uh, especially for open source programming, as the default way to store code for versioning. And there's more and more tools and better and better tools. Obviously, Git 
Hub is a very popular one, but there's dozens, if not hundreds of tools out there that all use Git in some way. And it's, you know, it was created by the founder of Linux and it was meant for managing the Linux kernel development environment, which was distributed, which means the team was all over the world. They weren't on the same network. They didn't work for the same company and they needed to have an easy way to work on changing their stuff, essentially all their code over time in various ways, and then to come together and manage all that, right? Manage, you know, the guarantees of being certain that certain people are only allowed to change certain things, being able to manage differences so that you know if two people change the same thing, how do we resolve that conflict, all that stuff, right? That's all a part of the Git workflow. And that some of you are probably used to today. You probably work in Git throughout your day. Maybe you're someone who has a general understanding of GitHub and you're not quite sure where GitHub starts and Git ends. And the Git command line is what we're really talking about here. But GitOps is about taking the DevOps patterns that you may already be using or are learning to use and using Git as much as possible. But most importantly, that Git becomes the way that you store all of your infrastructure changes. So that means your infrastructure has to be code. And what that means is that any changes you make need to be in something like YAML or TOML or JSON. And that if you're running, if you're doing something like manually editing files on servers and changing one at a time things on servers, that is not gonna help you (laughs) in your DevOps um, world. And so GitOps is a way for us to manage and control all this change. And sort of the first step there is getting your servers and your CICD and all the changes and automation that you're thinking about, getting that into GitOps or Git repos, whether that's on GitHub or Bitbucket or, you know, Azure or AWS or, you know, whatever you want to use, right? GitLab, uh, there's tons and tons of tools out there. Uh, JFrog, uh, there's just... I could probably spout out another 20 of those tools and they're all ways to store code in a Git repository or, or store anything really in a Git repository. And once you start storing your server configurations and your Docker files and your YAML for Kubernetes and Swarm, once you start storing all of that in Git repos, you start plugging all that together. And the next thing you want to do is automate it. So you want to automate your CI CD, or maybe you want to automate deployments to production, or you want to automate um, your updates to production, or you want to automate any changes to your servers so that you're never manually t- touching servers. Because if you manually touch a server, we call that a snowflake. A snowflake is something in your technology world that is different than everything else, and you may not know how it's different, and you don't want that. Right. What we want is all of our infrastructure to be identical and to match our documentation. And nowadays, the documentation is usually in Git in the form of YAML, shell scripts, um, TOML, JSON, all those sorts of things. Sometimes you might put it in Python or Ruby if you have to automate things more. So we're talking about Ansible. We're talking about Chef and Puppet. We're talking about Terraform. All those things tend to have... Uh, YAML, we're sort of all converging on YAML and a little bit of TOML. And those things are being stored in Git repos. But once you do that, you need to start looking at your infrastructure and looking at your workflows, getting that code from developers into production 
and saying, I don't want to make any changes to my cloud or my servers manually. I don't want to go logging into the server and do something manually. What I really want is to make changes in my Git repo, and then those changes are automated and change the servers or the cloud configuration or whatever, right? Maybe it deploys the apps in Kubernetes. Maybe it updates the Docker images, all that stuff. And that is leading you toward GitOps. So if you check out this week's newsletter, um, if we haven't already posted the link, I'll put the link in the comments. But it's a mindset around taking your DevOps and focusing on the changes being implemented through Git commits. And if you think about it, if it was Utopia, if you had perfect GitOps, what you would do is you would say, what has changed today in my environments? And you would go to your Git commits, maybe you're storing them in GitHub. So you'd go to GitHub and a simplest little scenario would be a single GitOps repo. And you'd have all your Kubernetes YAML, you'd have all your server builds, you'd have any of your AWS cloud formations, they would all be in there. And then you would have automation somewhere else <clears throat> that would watch that repo for changes. And if certain files and certain directories changed, then those changes would be applied automatically for you. Once you start building up that automation, essentially your job is change management is going in and changing some things in your Git repo and then committing them with a really good, nice description in your, in your commit message. And that is the record, which will, you know, be forever in the chain of events over time. And then anyone who wants to go and say, Hey, what's happening? What, you know, what apps have we deployed this week? What updates have we done to servers? What things have we changed? That would all be in your Git commits. Now, obviously, you can't do all this in one day, and it's a process. But I think this is the way that a lot of the tools are going to start to go. And you're going to see tools out of companies like GitLab get more and more focused on the Git protocol as the way to store operational changes. And we call that GitOps. And it's only a couple years old. So read the newsletter, check it out. I provide a whole bunch of links there to get you started learning and understanding the basics of that. And um, yeah, you can, uh, in fact, I probably should make a short URL to get you to that newsletter uh, so that it's easier for you to get there. And once I do, I'll put that out in another newsletter. So thanks for listening to my little rant on that. I'm excited that uh, I, I love Git as a protocol for sysadmin work. I've been doing that for a long time now. And finally, I think the community, we're coming together and have it. we have a word for it. So now that we have a word for it, it likely means that we're going to get people jumping on board and building tools to solve these problems and to make it easier for you to take the code that you're building and build servers and deploy to those servers using a very few amount of tools and using a GitOps pattern. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.